Father, as we have just sang these words, as we have just confessed with our mouths that you are all I want. God, forgive us who have lied and our hearts are not that you are all we want. Forgive us who are weak and we sing with our lips and desire and long with our hearts that you are all I want. But our remaining sin, our weak flesh, our weak spirits prevent us. For we want wealth and riches. We want fame and glory. We want power and dominion. We want vindication. We want pleasures. God, help us. Help, help us as your people to know them that what you give us is enough and to acknowledge the blessings that come from you are from you. Help us to love you and not the gifts that you give. And help us that in our hearts we can truly, more truly every moment say, Thou of Christ are all I want. God, this morning we pray your blessing on the preaching of your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work among us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us. And Lord, very personally, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in me. The prayer of each one of us to that you would work in me drawing us to Christ, conforming us to Christ. Hide this preacher behind the cross of Calvary. Help us to hear this morning the voice of our Savior, the Word of God. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen. This morning we return to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, last week we looked at 1 Peter 4, the first six verses, and this morning we will read the verses 1 through 11, and we'll come back again, Lord willing, next week to this same text, um, trying to extract from it, as it were, to exposit what is before us. Today our primary focus will be verse 7. I would like to just to just make an acknowledgement or, or make an observation. Last week, as we looked at this text, last week as we saw in this text of Scripture that we should no longer live as the Gentiles live, that we should no longer live like the world because we have had enough time serving sin and Satan and self. That sermon was a was a hard call 
to repentance. And I don't know how your week has gone, but I know um, for many of us, Satan was listening last week and has been very active. For many of us, temptation to sin has increased. Trials, tribulations, suffering, difficulties, hardness has increased. And we should expect that because Satan is an adversary and a great adversary. But we comfort in this. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. If you've made your way to 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll read verses 1 through 11. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead, him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also, also to them who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. For love shall cover a multitude of sin. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same to one, to one to another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter has been instructing Christians on how we are to live as believers and, and disciples of Christ in this world filled with suffering, especially as we face suffering specific to believers as, as we suffer for the cause of Christ. Peter instructs us, how shall we then live? Last week we heard the single imperative, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. And we were encouraged to think about suffering, to, to think about the hardships of this world in the same way that Christ thinks about suffering. And if we were to summarize what this is, the mind of Christ, what Peter calls the mind of Christ, we might say the mind of Christ is, 
It's better to suffer than to sin. It's better to suffer than to sin. That's where we left off last week. It's better to suffer than to sin. And we are exhorted to lay off sin and to endure suffering with Christ-like thinking. So the subject has not changed. We're still speaking of suffering and we come to verse 7 and we read, The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. Hearing, hearing these words, perhaps you have images that pop up in your mind. Images maybe of a man standing on a street corner with a sandwich board. The end of all things is near. We might, we might think of that man standing on the street corner with this end of all things is near sign and we might say that man is he's not quite right. He's a little off his rock. That's, that's how we think of that sentiment. The end of all things is near. But we need to understand this text of Scripture the Word of God. There's something very dangerous that happens in our mind. There, there's something called a cognitive bias that derails our thinking. We've talked about it before. It's related to the status quo. It, it's a desire and even an expectation that things will stay the same. And this is an error in thinking. This this is an error in thinking that can lead to apathy. Thinking that if, if we just keep going along as things are, if, if I don't do anything, things will be tomorrow what they were today. Things will be next week what they were this week. Things will continue as they have been. I, I fear that this cognitive bias, this kind of thinking will and perhaps already has by the apathy of men caused the end of good things. The end of good business. Business is good. Let's do nothing. Good business dies. The end of good societies and even good countries. We remember that quote. What does it take for evil to have dominion for good men to do nothing. If we do nothing, we lose good families. Is your family in a good place? Is your family good? Well, Father, don't stop. Don't coast. Don't do nothing. Are you in a good marriage? Marriages take work. They take work at the beginning. They take work all the way through. I, I spoke to my grandfather somewhere around his 70th wedding anniversary and he spoke as though it still was work so some of us have only been married 30 40 years it's still work some of you are just starting out it's it's getting used to it it's work this cognitive bias of if we do nothing things will continue as they have been this is not a new way of thinking we read in Peter's second epistle uh, these words, since the fathers fell asleep, that is to say, since the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, for so long since they have died, all things continue as they were from the beginning. 
That's the error in thinking. Things have been this way since the beginning of time and they will continue and we have this error in thinking that things will begin. Uh, that things will continue. I'm sorry. So the first thing we need to learn from this verse, verse 7 being our focal verse today. The first thing we need to learn from this verse is there is an end to all things. There is an end. That's the first thing we need to see. There is an end. Things won't always be as they are now. The end is coming. There is an end. Now for some of you, you need, you need, you need to know this. You live as though you will never die. You live as though there is no judgment day, as though there is no reality of heaven and hell. The scripture is very clear, very clear in many different places about this truth, but it can be no clearer than it is right here in verse seven. There is an end. There is an end. So the first thing, there is an end. Secondly, we need to see in this verse, not only that there is an end, not only that there is an end of some things, but it says the end of all things. Some things ending we would be glad for, right? There's something, boy, the end of taxes. <laughs> well, that, that'll never happen, but we would be glad for the end of some things, the end of some things we would rejoice and celebrate, but this verse says the end of all things. As we're thinking about what this means, the end of all things, Peter is writing here to an audience, primarily Jewish, and there are three possibilities in, in how we might understand what is meant by saying the end of all things. Three possibilities. First, he could mean the end of all things Jewish. The end of all things for the Jews. Secondly, the end of all things personal. The end for individuals. And thirdly, the end of all things globally. The final end. So let's, let's consider each of these possibilities. In the first place, we have to remember, as I said, Peter is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And if we remember history, this is at the beginning of a time of great persecution for Christians. So many believers would be mistreated and suffer terrible evils. He's speaking of suffering to people who either already know suffering or soon will really know suffering. And all of this will, will culminate in the year 70 A.D. And we just read about that in our reading that Brother Aiden read for us. In the year 70 A.D. when Jerusalem would be destroyed. When Christ's words were fulfilled, not one stone was left on another. In 70 A.D. the nation of Israel... The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the, the people who served as a, as a foreshadow, as a type of the church, that people would cease to be a nation. 70 AD was the end of all things Jewish. 
Now, there's much conversation we could have that we don't have time for today about those who try to perpetuate. But in 70 AD, the nation of Israel ceased to be. And one, one way that we might understand Peter's words here in speaking to the audience that he is primarily speaking to is this is the end of all things Jewish. But I, I don't think that fully captures the meaning of the end of all things. I mean, there's certainly truth to be observed here, but I don't think that captures the fullness of it. Secondly, we have to consider that Peter could have been speaking in a personal, individual manner. And we know that life is short. The Bible says that life is a vapor. Life is a vapor. Each person in Peter's original audience is now dead. Each one individually, they are dead. And many who have read these words since Peter's day are now dead and gone. And friends, if the Lord delays his coming, each one of you will be dead and gone. And the day of your death will be sooner than you think. Especially in our youth, we tend to think that death is so far off. We live as though it is not even not even going to happen. But death is unavoidable. It's often said birth to death ratio is one to one. Not one miss. And we would all do better, friends, to keep our mortality in the forefront of our minds. To keep our mortality at the ready in our thinking. The end of all things for you, my friend, is truly near. And that's another way that we might consider how Peter meant these words. The end of all things personal. Personally, individually. But, but again, I don't think this tells us everything that we are to find in this verse. Though there is truth there. The third way, and I think this is how we should understand this verse, the third way, the end of all things is a statement of finality. The end of all, I struggle with this, the end of all things globally, the end of all things, there, there's almost not a word, the end of all things, period. And I think that's how we have to, how we have to understand this. I, I would, I would call you to, to remember that all scientists seem to agree that the world will come to an end. Isn't that scary? Well, they all, they all say the world will come to an end. Now, they differ on how it will come to an end. Some say, well, it'll be because of an asteroid or a comet and, and colliding with the Earth, impacting the Earth, and, and that's how it will come to an end. Some say the sun will engulf the Earth. Some believe that dark matter will destroy the world. All these theories are only if men don't destroy humanity and destroy the world first. And, and all scientists seem to fall in somewhere in an agreement. Yeah, this can't continue. 
In our day, <laughs> what would have been a joke when I was a teenager, in our day we're having real conversations about the robots taking over. Artificial intelligence. I mean, we're having real conversations about where this is going to take our world. And, and it's for some of us, it's very scary. But everyone seems to be in agreement. The world will end. Somehow. But Christians, we should not act as though this is new information. We should not act like this is news. The world's going to end. Yeah, the Bible's been telling us that for thousands of years. We have known that from the beginning, as it were. We've known there's an end. For anyone who reads the Bible, it's very clear that this is not going to go on forever. All of creation had a certain beginning and it will have a certain end. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And the whole earth will be burned up to make room for new heavens and new earth. And as we read earlier in Revelation, John said, I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. Later in Revelation, John says, behold, or Jesus said in Revelation, behold, I am coming to bring my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. The end of all things globally. And Christ will come to judge. Scripture speaks in 2 Peter chapter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. I heard someone this week speak about a secret rapture. Let me tell you, when Jesus returns, <laughs> yeah, there'll be no secret. There's no secret. It's going to be, everybody's going to. Clearly, the end of all things for the Jews, the end of all things individually, and the end of all things globally, clearly these things are all true. Jerusalem was destroyed and the nation of Israel ceased in 70 AD. There is a high probability, and we need to recognize this, we need to look for Jesus' return, but understand there is a high probability that every one of us will face death just like those who have gone before us. And for a few, they will live until Jesus returns. And then the end of all things for them. Peter is informing us here that there is an end, not just an end to some things, but an end of all things. And we also learn here, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is near. Even though everyone agrees that the universe will come to an end, people live as though either there is no end or the end is so far into the unknown, seemingly infinite future that we don't need to think about it. We certainly don't need to do anything to change the way we live in light of the fact that 
the end of all things is near. How we are corrected by Peter's words. The end of all things is near. If there was no hope. If there was no hope, we just wouldn't say it, right? If there's no hope, then why would we even talk about it? The reason we talk about it is because there's hope. The end of all things is near. The writers of the New Testament spoke about the nearness of the end. And we find things like Paul said, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Matthew said the coming of Jesus will be like lightning. Lighting up the sky from east to west. Like lightning. In the second epistle, Peter would say Jesus' coming would be like a thief in the night. And, and John and Paul also spoke of Christ's return as, a, as like a thief in the night. Friends, the end of all things is near. Now someone would challenge this and someone would say, wait a minute, the writers of the New Testament spoke about the soon, soon coming of Christ, but it's been 2,000 years. It's been 2,000 years since they said it was near. And still, we have not reached the end. You should know that Peter points to this attitude as a sign of nearing the end. In 2 Peter 3, he says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He continues, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Some people use that verse, you know, a thousand years in a day to the Lord, there's no difference. And they use that verse to say that Jesus doesn't know how to keep time, that, that God doesn't have a watch. That just tells me you haven't read the context of it. You, you took the verse off the website you Googled it from. And you haven't read the text of 2 Peter. Listen, friends. You may say, Jesus hasn't come back in 2,000 years. He's not coming back. Listen, the promises of God for Jesus' return are as good 2,000 years later as they were the day he said it. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't he has a diminished. He is faithful. A thousand years. It's like he said it yesterday. And, and the scripture is very clear. We are in the last days. Now, now some people say that it may be we in 2023 are in the last days. But listen, we've had about 2000 years of last days. The last days began at, at Pentecost and, and will be in the last days until Jesus returned. We are in the last days. And if the apostles were looking for the imminent return of the Lord, if they were watching the eastern sky, how much more should we be expecting his coming 2,000 years later? One other important thing for us to understand about this verse, the end of all things is near, but we need to understand that the end 
Listen, believers, the end is more than a ceasing. The end is more than cessation, right? We need, we need to see how we might understand the word the end. It's more than simply a termination point. The end is the end of all things, and it also is a point of beginning. The end of all things is the beginning of other things. Now, now we, we, we think sometimes of the end like a finishing a thing, like finishing a thing. We think of the end of a rope. Well, I guess a rope has two ends. We think of the end of the rope. That's the end of it. We think of the end of a movie. The movie went and then it ended and it was over. But that is, this is, there's more here. There's another sense in which Peter speaks of the end here. This, the end of all things is near, speaks of a consummation and a fullness which is to come at the end. Peter certainly speaking to those believers who are being persecuted. Certainly he's saying that sufferings and persecutions will cease at the end. But equally true and even more important is the consummation of the kingdom of Christ. For the Christian, hearing the news, the end of all things is near. This is so far from being bad news for us. This is not something we dread, believers. The end of all things is near. Praise God. We eagerly await the end, because it will mark the beginning of the age to come. New heavens, new earth, new glorified bodies, a, a new being, for we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We who are new creatures in Christ Jesus long for the day when our salvation will be full and final as the progressive sanctifying work of Christ is finished at the end in the age to come. What a day that will be. So in light of the fact that the end of all things is near, Christians, how then are we to live? The end of all things is near. How then are we to live? The text gives us an answer. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Some of our English translations, and, and I know many of you read the ESV, it's going to make it sound like this soberness as well as this watching is related to prayer. The, the self-control and the sober-mindedness is related to the one thing of prayer. But, but I think we have it better in the old American Standard and in the King James where these are separate, where there's a comma, where there's a separation. And we see these two separate exhortations. Number one, be sober or be self-controlled. And number two, be watchful unto prayer or sober-minded unto prayer. If we, if we say they're both related to prayer, it's really like saying the same thing twice. It's like saying be sober-minded and sober-minded unto prayer. But I think it's be sober-minded and be sober-minded unto prayer. Be sober-minded and be watchful unto prayer. I think this is a better way for us to understand this. 
in light of the Lord's soon return. The end of all things is near. In light of this, first of all, in contrast to drunkenness, to, to the lack of clear-headedness that you once lived in, that we saw in the verses that we dealt with last week, the way the world still lives, you be sober, not clouded or controlled by another substance, not clouded or controlled by power or whatever trip you might get on in this world. Be sober in thinking, be sound in judgment. This is the opposite of drunkenness. Christians, we should not be staggering, as it were, through life. Drunks do things without thought. And when they think about things and do them, it's bad thinking. But Christians, we are to take every thought captive. Have you heard a drunk speak? Slur that speech. But Christians, we should be clear with a certain yes and no. In light of the Lord's soon return, believers, be sober. This, this, can we just say this? This does not mean that we need to go around looking like we've been sucking on lemons. This does not mean that we can have no joy, no laughter, no, don't you dare smile. Some people have had this crazy idea. When we come to worship the Lord, only frowns. <clears throat> what is that? Being sober does not mean that we don't have joy. As a matter of fact, we have more joy than anyone. We must be joyful Christians. We are the only ones with hope. It doesn't mean that we walk around somber. We walk around sour. We do walk around so. Secondly, in light of Christ's soon return, be watchful unto prayer. Watchful. Some, some translations say sober-spirited or sober-minded unto prayer. Now, now note, for, just look in your Bible. This is not a command to pray. There are plenty of scriptures that give us commands to pray. Pray at all times. Pray for your neighbor. Pray for your enemy. Pray for those in authority. Pray at all times. Pray without seeking. There are plenty of scriptures that command us to pray, but this ain't one of them. Here, Peter does not command to pray. He assumes that prayer, of course, is a part of the life of a Christian. Of course. Prayer is vital to the Christian, and Peter knows that, and this just this assumption is made. Of course there's prayer. I, I thought about a comparison. I'll make some of you mad. Go ahead and do that. A Christian without prayer is like a veggie burger without a bun. Those things do exist, and people eat them. But can I tell you something? I looked it up in the dictionary. That's not a burger. A burger is ground meat between two slices of bread. That's a burger. So you might eat that thing. They call it, some places call it an impossible burger. You know why? It's impossible that that's a burger. <laughs> okay. 
It's the same way with a prayerless Christian. Now, Christians, Christians don't pray often enough. Christians don't pray earnest enough. Christians don't pray, pray biblically enough. But Christians pray. If you find yourself looking at a prayerless Christian, call that an impossible Christian. Because that's not possible. And here in this verse, Peter assumes prayer. You know, for every Christian I've ever known and myself at the top of the list, all you got to do is mention prayer and there's conviction that we don't pray often enough, we don't pray biblically enough. There's conviction. But Christians pray. Moreover, the original languages use, use the, a plural word here. Prayers are in view. All times of prayer, all kinds of prayer, be watchful, be sober-minded unto all that prayer. And herein we are instructed to set our minds for prayer. We shouldn't even have to get ready for prayer, Christians. We should just stay there. Pray without ceasing. That's the, that's the idea there. We should just stay ready. Have you ever known people who prayed at the drop of a hat? I, I remember the first time I ran into people that, that just, they prayed about everything. They just, they, they would stop and pray about whatever came up. Christians, we need to stay ready. We need to stay ready to come before the throne of God. And we don't need, according to this, set your mind, your sober-mindedness, your, your sober thinking, your sober spirit, your watchfulness for prayer. That means we don't just come at prayer thoughtlessly. We come mindfully to prayer, watchful unto prayer. And this is the instruction that we have here in verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and be watchful unto prayer. When speaking about suffering to Christians, Peter calls us to remember the second coming of Jesus. Believers, we are to find in these words, the end of all things is near. We are to find in these words hope and comfort. Hope and comfort. The end of all things is near. Dear lost friend, the truth of this verse, it's still truth for you as well. The end of all things is just as certain for you. The end of all things is just as near for you. But your perspective is different. Your outlook is not the same as the outlook of a Christian. For the lost person, the end of all things will mark the beginning of the age to come. But rather than enjoying new creation, new heaven, new earth, the place prepared by God for his children, for the lost person, the age to come promises torment and unspeakable miseries. For the Christian, the end of all things is hope and comfort. For the unbeliever, the end of all things will bring the end of grace, the end of mercy, the end of joy, the end of being as you know it, the end of, the end of what could rightly be called life, ushering in eternal death. 
Don't think the end of life and the beginning of eternal death is a ceasing to be, a ceasing to exist. There's an existence that will be eternal death. Lost friend, hear this verse of scripture as a warning. The end of all things is near. Hear it as a call to repentant faith in Jesus Christ. Come to him by faith and receive his grace and his mercy, which will, for the Christian, never end in heaven. For all those who believe on him, we find hope and comfort. The end of all things is near. So Christians, be sober-minded. Be watchful unto prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort that we find in it. We thank you that the comfort is not found in what we do and how well we perform, but that the comfort and the hope that we find is in Jesus Christ and what he has done, what he has performed on our behalf, the price that he has paid to ransom our souls from hell. God, we thank you. We thank you for our salvation. God, Forgive us where we have thought like the world and dreaded hearing the end of all things is near. Give us new perspectives. Give us new minds to think the end of all things marks the day when we stand in your presence. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly.